doctors and hospitals are much more serious than I wanted to be. So I started to clown and I saw that it was really appreciated. Clowns have been around for as long as you can remember. Have you ever wondered why on earth someone would want to be a clown? Well, in this podcast, join your hosts, Jeremy Cohen and Lee Andrews, as they take a journey behind the red nose. Hello, gang. Welcome to this edition of Behind the Red Nose. I'm Jeremy, also known as Crispy. And I am Lee, also known as Louie. Our guest today is Dr. Patch Adams, the clown who became a doctor. He is a physician, social activist, author, and we are proud to say a fellow clown. He founded the Gazuntai Institute in 1971 to reframe and reclaim the concept of a hospital, which we will find out more about shortly. Each year, he helps organize volunteers to travel around the world to bring hope and happiness to all who need it, and he has just been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. We are so honored and privileged to have with us today, Patch Adams. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. So one of our listeners, Paul Kleinberger, wrote us right away today when he found out that we were going to have you on our show, and, and he wanted to know, what does it feel like to be nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. How does that make you feel? Well, to be totally honest, I hope that it stimulates the building of our hospital. I mean, it's it's a nice honor. I've heard about it all my life, but I'm here to serve humanity in a medical vein, totally free of charge. And so I'm hoping because it is a famous award and the award held in high regard, I hope it's a good fundraising tool. I, you know, I'll say one more thing. It's a lot of times people think when they are nominated for a prize like that, it's a great honor. The great honor for me is when I go to a hospital, I say, please take me to who is suffering the most. And it is an honor to be with that person. You know, it's just an honor to sit across from a man who, in a very roundabout way, has shaped how I try to live my life, loving people, being in the moment with them, and being compassionate to, to everybody. Well, I appreciate that. It is my motivation. That's that's incredible. I have a question for you because I remember a quote, and it sticks out in my head, uh, That uh, and I think I've got it framed right. You once said, I'm a clown who is a doctor, not a doctor who is a clown. And uh, what does that distinction mean to you, and why is it so important? Well, I don't know how important it is. It's just the truth. I grew up on military bases outside the U.S., and normally sons of military people are manly men, and I was a weird, nerd, dweeb, dork, sissy boy. And so I found out that if I clowned, the bullies didn't hit me. And then I decided to add the humor part of clown, and and I found out how much empowerment that gave me and the environment I was in. And so that was at age eight or nine. And I became a doctor probably at somewhere around the age of 25. So I was a clown all of that time, but not yet a doctor. And then I found out that doctors and hospitals are much more serious than I wanted to be and that it wasn't healing to be grumpy or silent or so many other things that I saw in medical school. So I started to clown and I saw that it was really appreciated. Now, you touched on how your story began. You know, obviously, 
folks are familiar with the film, but I'd love to to get from you the real story, the true origins. Like, for instance, in the film, you were given the name Patch for patching up a, a coffee cup of a patient. What really was the origin of your name? Like, how did you go from the name Hunter to Patch? Well, to tell you the truth, Hunter was my mother's maiden name. But as a kid growing up, they called me Huntsy, which, you know, doesn't get by the bullies at all. And and then as a teenager, I was called Cunter. And so I, I never really liked my name. So to tell you the truth, I was more leaving Hunter than thinking about what my name would be. So I actually don't know where Patch came from. And it certainly wasn't from patching people up. Films tend to take a lot of liberty. So again, in the film, we see you in a children's ward and you take the bulb and you put it on your nose. As opposed to acting like a clown, was there a moment where you actually put on a red nose? And if so, when was that? I don't remember. And by the time I was in medical school, I was a clown. I may not have been a Ringling Brothers clown. You know, I I didn't have clown friends. I was goofy and I was, I'm an extreme extrovert. So I was very comfortable having toys and costumes and and props. And so I, I wore noses in medical school and I did it before then. So you, the clown was well established prior to medical school. And, you know, at what point when you were through medical school, uh, it may have been at the very beginning, I don't know, did you realize the importance of humor in medicine and, and in healing? And uh, what, was, what was it like when the two married in your mind and you saw how important that was? Well, as an adult, I've said clowning is a trick to get love close. In medical school, I might have said love and humor are tricks to get love close because love was really, compassion was not really mentioned to much of a degree in medical school and and humor was considered unprofessional except what you did among fellow medical students or that sort of thing, that you were a serious physician. But that never rang true to me. I could see that patients liked my twinkle in the eye and smile on my face and goofy behavior. Because they could see it's real. And and they could tell there was a human side to you. And so at what point did you did you get the idea for the institute? And and was humor the basis for the institute? Well, I, I I'm assuming because I I I know your your love for people. People was the base for the institute and helping people. But where did the institute? At what point did you decide this is what I need to do? Well, within a month of medical school, I saw almost nothing that they did was right. That doctors bossed nurses, and that well-known doctors bossed lesser-known doctors, and that hospitals were not fun and loving places. Love was not mentioned as a way to be a doctor, and that there wasn't enough time spent with patients, and uh, that hospitals were dull places that 
often I would see doctors completely ignore the staff. The lower you were on in the pay scale, the less they had any contact with you. There was very little equality among staff, and and the actual hospital itself was was dull. And so I pretty much from almost day one, I was thinking that I was going to do it. One, I knew I was going to do it free. That was the first clear thing for me, that medicine was going to be a gift. And another quick thing was that I was going to spend more time with patients. And so I I liked knowing who a person is. I, I liked going to their homes. And, you know, I'm a family doctor who never once gave a psychiatric diagnosis or psychiatric medication. Who can say that? I say it actually that I never disliked a patient enough to do it. That as I was reading and studying people, I could see that that our society bred loneliness. I don't think depression is ever a disease. It's a symptom of loneliness, but you can't give a pill for loneliness. That we, you know, we live in a world of 7.5 billion people And people are lonely. How the hell does that happen? I haven't found one school. I've lectured and performed in 82 countries in every state. And I haven't found one school that teaches one hour on loving. One hour on the most important thing in life. So since I grew up an activist and was was looking at things, I could see that it was hard to see what in medical school was healing. I mean, I knew there were certain drugs and therapies that were good for people. And I also saw that a lot of health professionals got burned out or that they were stressed. Or, And if they stressed, they started yelling or being silent. And and I, I, I told myself, if I have to work here, I'm not going to be a doctor. And as I became more and more an activist in medical school, which I was, I saw that it would be really valuable to, okay, if you don't like it the way it is, show a hospital the way you love it. And how are you able to keep that positive attitude? How are you able to to be in that type of environment and with so many people saying, this isn't the right way, how are you able to continue to push forward and say, no, this is the way that it should be done. What was it that drove you? What was it that kept you saying it's worth the effort to do and to say and to be who I am? Okay, I want you to hear me. Seven years I lived in Germany to 1961. My father died. My mother moved us back to Virginia in 61. And I know exactly when my life changed forever in a public park at a public drinking fountain that said whites only. I realized my country was fake and religion was fake and that a person could actually pass by that sign and not tear it down. At first I flipped out and was hospitalized three times at 17, but then I was present at Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech and I instantly changed. I realized you don't kill yourself, stupid. You make a revolution of love and fun. And so I decided at 18 to never have another bad day as a political act for peace and justice and care for all people in nature. I decided to be six qualities, happy, funny, 
loving, cooperative, creative, and thoughtful. I was such a nerd, I didn't have to study very much, so I read a huge number of books that reinforced what I was saying. And it's why I have a huge library. And I am an extreme extrovert, so I started to experiment and go out in public. I would make myself go into a bar and I wasn't allowed to leave till I met everybody. Things like that, assignments that I would give myself. And so the real answer to your question is I make me. I decide who I'm going to be and I am the thing I decide and then I pay attention to myself if I am that. And if I'm not, I get back on course. So that by the time most people have met me, I really had done that so many times, it was the me. It doesn't mean I don't get angry. There are times when anger is the right emotion. There are times, you know, I I can get sad, especially over a close friend dying. But it's the right emotion. It's just not the right emotion if you're if you're leaning on it and decide to adapt it as who you are. You have it, and then you go on with your life, hopefully inspired by the person who died. And so as I saw that I could make myself, I saw how valuable it was to have a twinkle in the eye and a smile on my face. I saw how valuable it was in impacting whatever environment I was in to be playful and funny and loving. And since I noticed how powerful it was, that's what I decided to keep being. Very few people really understand that from my sharing it with a lot of people, but I want you and the audience to hear me. I make who I am. The things that I make are the important things. I'm not important. What's important is loving, playfulness, joy. These are important, and anyone can have them. So you mentioned something earlier. You've lectured in 82 countries and every state. You've never been in a school that has taught an hour of loving in a a class. And do you think that that's because I... Is there a fear of love? Is there a fear of teaching about it? Is there, what, what, what do you think? Why, why is that? Because I believe it could do an incredible amount of good for any age group to learn about love and the importance of love. So why do you think that is? Well, in my estimation, about 10% of relationships are loving. So a lot of people like to avoid their home life because when they go home, It's stressful. And that our gender is a lot of the backbone of that celebration of misery, males. That when a lot of times we think of love, we think of the feminine, what mother gave us, if if she gave it, or however little she gave. And for most people, since they didn't get the training in growing up, they didn't decide to study it enough, read the books, and, and become loving. A lot of women, unless they're damaged, are loving, whatever, whether you want to relate it to maternal uh, things or not. And, and so, you know, I grew up with films where men were men. I never wanted to be one of those men, that I liked being the women. And so 
this is the society that we live in, that, that winning is more important than losing. And these are male concepts. And that I loved the response to the world to me being fun. And so no matter, even if it made me lose points among guys, I didn't care. It's a short to a very long exploration. Well, I think there's a strength in being vulnerable. And what I also appreciate about you is that you are self-aware and that you're able to really open up and talk about who you are and what you feel. You know, people say that they, they hide their pain behind humor sometimes. I mean, even as a clown, people say, well, that's a mask of sorts. And I know that I've known folks who have been clowns because there have been things in their lives they really want to not showcase and they feel like they can hide in the humor. Do you feel like being a clown sometimes can be a mask of sorts? And I'm curious, you know, your perspective. You know, when I say I make me, I'm consciously making who I am. That's really important to hear. That I'm not crying on the inside. That it, first off, and we haven't mentioned the word gratitude, but for me, gratitude is a holy story. My mom used to say, I laughed all day because I was dancing until I met a man who had no feet. You know, that I'm, I'm just so grateful. I'm grateful to have arms and legs. I'm grateful to be at 75. I'm really grateful to be alive. I'm, I'm really grateful I have a perfect partner for me. I really am grateful. I'm grateful for, I, I'm going to guess, millions of things. Every writer I love, every artist I love, music I love, all of nature that I love, I am grateful for that and that I've been able to have so much of it. That's why, yes, I thought the hospital would be built in five years. It's not relying on me or it would have been built by then. It's relying on people being generous and donating, and they haven't. And it's not, I'm not thinking it's my fault that they're not. It's just that it's not coming in. I've become more aggressive in asking because I'm not sure. I think a lot of people think we must be built, of course, because of the movie, because of these things. And we're, we're not. If I had to close down the whole operation tomorrow, you know, that's what I have to do. I don't have to do it yet, but I'm, I, I have a great life no matter what happens. If I lost everything, I know many places I could go that would take me in. And I feel like a really rich person. So speaking of the Institute, how can people specifically support this mission and the Institute? Well, I mean, the most personal way is for themselves to be loving and funny. Okay, to help us get built, we need funds. If everybody who in this moment loved me on the planet sent $10, we'd be built. The, the film and the other things I've done have given me that much fame. It's not there. And so I, I'm asking, you know, in a way I'm asking for world peace. I want a world where no one alive knows what the word war means. They have to look it up in a dictionary, and then they don't believe the definition. 
because I can't believe any human with a brain would have been dumb enough to do it. And so I need your help, which is the generic person I'm facing. I need whatever you feel you can comfortably afford, or if you have contacts to go to them. And imagine that day when the ribbon is cut and the hospital is open. It'll be heaven on earth. It'll actually be a lot wilder than heaven on earth, I think. <laughs> so patchadams.org is the, is the website where they can donate online. And I would imagine also on there is where they can mail in information to mail in money to support the Institute. Right. I'm happy for you to give my address. We will make sure that people know where to get the money to help you along. Um, so I, I have another question because we, we've talked a lot of the medical side of stuff, but just in your opinion, what's the difference between a good clown and a great clown? Are they having fun? Oh, that's a good point. Are they having fun doing it? Are they judging, oh, I'm a lot better clown than that other guy? That person is never going to have as much fun clowning as the person who's simply having fun. So I, I, I've led over 300 clown trips. I don't care if a person has ever taken a clown class. I ask them, wear outrageous clothes and have some toys and you'll be a great clown. I love that. It's so simple. I agree. So what's the biggest misconception about Patch Adams in terms of, you know, people have seen the movie and heard your story through the eyes of Hollywood and through Robin Williams. What do you think people should know about your story versus what was on the big screen? Well, the biggest story is we're not built. I think a lot of people think we're built. They thought the movie would have built us. And, you know, when you've been working on something for 50 years, it's funny that but uh, it isn't, and it isn't, and so that's the biggest misconception. What about in terms of the movie itself? Do you think that, you know, was there, and again, we don't have to go too far down the, the road of the movie, but I think people are always curious, was that really his story? Was that a real proper portrayal of the man? Do you feel like it was? They left out the political me and the, the depth of the political me. It doesn't sell tickets. Oh, and, and the, the, if there was a painful thing, the real person murdered was my closest male friend. Louis was not my boyfriend or girlfriend. He was a person that really liked what we were doing and took it on himself, and it killed him. And, and that's got to be tough from the perspective of the, of the man that the movie's portraying, and I'm very sorry for that. I was sorry. I did cry. And uh, I know, Louis, he would want you to carry on. And, and in a way, the, the, the Institute will be a part of carrying on what he believed in. So that, that, that's the fantastic part of the whole thing is there, there are a ton of people that want to see this built for you. But, but before we let you go, we do have a few listener questions and uh, one of them comes from a group in Atlanta, Humorology Atlanta. They go by HA, which is an organization of professional performers, 
uh, that do therapeutic fun in three children's hospitals in, in Atlanta. And uh, you mentioned earlier uh, burnout, and they want to know, how do you stay away from that? Well, the short form is what I've said several times is, I make me. Burnout can't happen. I don't let it happen. A lot of people that get burnout, they define burnout, and then when they get there, they get burnout. You know, I had to clown for five men in Trinidad who were hung the next morning. Four of them loved it, and one of them kept begging for mercy the entire time. And if you're going to be hung in the morning, you don't want to have a horrible time the night before. And that's why I ask for the patients who are suffering the most. I know they're not going to hurt me, and I hope I can do something. That burnout is something you open the door to burnout, and it comes in. I don't know why anyone doing what they love could burn out. That's a very good point. And they also wanted to know, do you have a resiliency plan when it comes to staying emotionally healthy during really difficult times? Well, you've heard it, and I'll say it again. I make me. In every minute, I am the person I make. So I, I want to see the worst suffering. I don't care if someone doesn't laugh. I... I am I am myself playing and having fun and noticing the environment and going towards something that I think could use some help. That I I I don't think in terms of failure. What do you intend? I intend to be the six qualities happy, funny, loving, cooperative, creative, and thoughtful. I intend to work for Gesundheit. I intend to do exercise so that I can stay in shape. So intending is the word used when you make you. The uh, president of a clown relief organization called Red Nose Response, Michael Bednarik, who's a clown and a physical comedian, wanted to know if there was one piece of advice that you would give to clowns or medical professionals looking to bring humor into a a healthcare or a medical setting, what would be your advice? Have fun. That's what Mary Poppins said. In every job that must be done, there's an element of fun. You find the fun and snap. The job's a game. And every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake. You know that you practice in in everything that you're doing. When you're in a grocery store, you're friendly to people. When you're stopping at a stop sign, you can look over at a person and be funny. The idea of listening, of really listening, and in what you hear, responding, not by what the attending physician wants you to respond, but what the patient and their family wants you to respond to. As we say in the South, that'll preach. Leslie Ann Aiken who uh, has a, a popular online forum and publication called Just for Clowns. She asks, what was your most challenging experience with a patient and as a clown slash doctor? I'm not sure I use the word challenging. You know, when I say that I ask the staff who is suffering the most, I'm not worried about whether or not I'll go over. I like being present with them and seeing what happens. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not a person that wants to sacrifice his life for something. 
So I'm not, I'm not a goer into war. I refuse the Vietnam War. I refuse to go. I said, you can put me in jail or shoot me. I'm not going to go hurt people or be involved in hurting people. So, you know, I think one of the things I've done that no one else has done is one of my props is the world's largest underpants. And I've had two presidents of countries in my underpants with me publicly. And I'll bet you there are not many clowns that can do that. So, you know, feel outrageous and don't think the word failure. You try things and you see, you learn that this kind of person with this kind of facial expression or this kind of style may not respond in the same way as this person over here that's different. And don't judge whether that was a good response and this is a bad response. Just notice it as a response. So my final question building off of that is, what has been probably the most rewarding experience for you? You've had such a history and touched so many lives. Is there one moment in time that really sticks out that you would say, that's the one moment this is what made it all worth it. Millions of them. Millions of moments like that. That, you know, being alive to wake up. You know, the number of lonely stories, sad stories, difficult stories that I've heard, just waking up blissful is, is heaven. And the, the privilege to be alive at 75 is, is huge. And... You know, the song Life is a Carnival, I, I find it to be a carnival and that I love helping. I, I had a great mother. My father was a soldier. His mind was destroyed by Korea. And my mother always was right there loving and loving and loving. And I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm, I don't wait to clown when I've got all my gear and everything on and my clown shoes on. I, I, I live in clown clothes. I don't have any normal clothes. And I, I play where I go. And I, I love what happens. When I was with the five men who were hung the next morning, I wasn't weeping for their fate. I, I'm saying they're alive, damn it. Enjoy yourself. I love that. So Brian Lee, who has actually been on tours with you or a tour with you before, also wanted to know, uh, do you have any tours planned this year? Not until COVID is over. You know, they're not going to let us in their hospital or their orphanage or their prison and that sort of thing. And and I don't want to have to be spend my time on a clown trip trying to talk them into it. So We'll, as soon as we can resume them as they are, we will. Normally, for 25 years, I think we did six or seven a year. This would have been, this last November would have been our 35th year in Russia, which was the first one. And so we'll, we'll see. It'll be really interesting to see if we say, okay, next October, we're going to go to Guatemala. Who's going? I'll bet you it fills up pretty quickly. We look forward to whenever the tours resume, and and personally, I hope that at some point I can go on one of those with you and and just play and have fun. And uh, you know, I want to wrap it up with you because we've taken a, enough of your time. But thank you for 
all that you have done and all that you continue to do for mankind and for the just empowering nature that you have about you to exemplify love, compassion, uh, and, and being there for people. Thank you for that, because I, there's nothing I can do to repay you for what I have learned outwardly from you, um, because it, is, it has changed the course of my life, and, and it, is, it is really just, it, it's incredible what you've done just for me and what I know for other people. So thank you, and thank you for spending your time with us on this podcast uh, patchadams.org. We will get, get as many people to go there as we can to send you donations so that we can get the Institute built and that we can, we can, you know, hopefully get what would be your most rewarding moment in life built for you. And, uh, we just love you. Well, I just want to say I am not special. Loving is special. Anyone can add that to who they are. I'm simply a tag-along. I do feel special for having spent this time with you. You know, I would love to be able to bottle what you've said and be able to give it out to everybody. It could change millions of lives. And even over the the course of the last uh, minutes that we've been together, it's definitely changed mine. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for being on the show. Thank you. Now I'm going to go do my yoga. (laughs) 